Hello everyone and welcome back to the fourth episode in the BSGE podcast series. My name is Rebecca Malik and I'm a consultant gynaecologist at University Hospital Sussex and I'm also part of the Sussex Endometriosis Centre. This month we're going to bring you highlights of the last BSGE webinar. This was the first ever combined BSGE BSUG webinar and focused on the endoscopic treatment for stress incontinence, looking at which procedure uh, should be first line, essentially bulking agents versus laparoscopic corpal suspension. As expected, this provoked quite a lot of debate amongst the urogynecologists, and both our speakers were very much fighting their corner. Our first speaker was Mr Dudley Robinson, a consultant urogynecologist from King's College London, and he was all for bulking agents as the first-line intervention for urinary stress incontinence. And I'm going to share some snippets of his talk with you now. Um, so I'm going to be uh, talking about bulking agents as a uh, first-line treatment for stress urinary incontinence. And for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name's Dudley Robinson, and I'm a consultant urogynecologist at King's College Hospital in South East London. And these are my relevant disclosures. So over the next 20 minutes, what I'm going to do is ask you to unlearn. And I'm going to ask you to discard those things that you know about bulking agents, which may be false or outdated information. And I'm going to ask you to go with me and look at the myths around surrounding bulking agents. And over the next 20 minutes, I'm going to dismiss these myths. So I'm going to show you that in actual fact, bulking agents are effective. That bulking agents are not inferior to traditional consonant surgery, that bulking agents have long-term efficacy, and that bulking agents should be used for primary therapy. And I hope after 20 minutes you'll agree with me that bulking agents should be considered first-line endoscopic treatment for women with stress urinary incontinence. Now, to help me persuade you tonight, I'm going to invite two guests along. And the first of these is Humpty Dumpty. So in Through the Looking Glass, Humpty Dumpty says to Alice, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. And a nice illustration of this is if we go back to the TVT colpo suspension data uh, published by Warden Hilton in 2000. And this shows us very clearly that when we're thinking about efficacy, or if you like, cure, it varies considerably depending on what outcome um, variable we look at. So you can see um, in this particular slide, we have success rates of around 90% for systometry, around 85% for pad tests, dropping down to a combination of subjective and objective, which only gives a success rate of around 30%. But I think you'll probably agree with me that what's most important to our patients is patient satisfaction, which you see here is equal around 85% for both colpo suspension and TVT. So when we're thinking about cure, what we should do is probably think about what Alice has to say. The question is whether you can make words mean so many different things. And I put it to you that cure is one of those words. I think the other important thing to think about is what our patients want. Now, of course, Mel Gibson may be a fair bet about what women may want. Perhaps our co-chairs may be less applicable, but you never know. 
But what do women want when we're thinking about low urinary tract symptoms? And this is a, a study which I originally reported on in 2003, and Rich Flint, who is one of our fellows, reported more recently. So this was a, a questionnaire-based study asking women what they expected from treatment of their bladder symptoms. And you can see most women are fairly realistic, both in 2003 and 15 years later, and the majority just hope for a good improvement in bladder symptoms. So they don't necessarily want to be completely dry, but they want things to be better and they want their symptoms to improve. So we then went on um, to ask what treatments they would find to be acceptable. So this, this, to begin with, is my data from 2003. And when you look at the operative data, you can see we were looking at major operations. So if you like open colpo suspension, a minor procedure, which we were thinking about TVT, and a clinic procedure, which is clearly bulking. And as you can see, the majority of women, 57%, would prefer a clinic procedure, even though the improvement rate is lower. So what we see is a trade-off that women are willing to trade a lower success rate for a more minor procedure. And sure enough, if we look at the data from 2018, from when Rich repeated the study, we see something very uh, very similar. So those patients, again, would favor, 51% of those patients would favor a bulking agent procedure rather than a more invasive uh, operation. So what about the data? And what I'm going to do is I'm, hopefully I'm going to tell you a story. We're going to look at the data now looking at consonance procedures. And I think the majority of you who are listening tonight will agree that we have good long-term data for open colpo suspension. So these are the findings from the International Consultation on Incontinence in 2017. And you can see all have one level one evidence and a grade A recommendation that colpo suspension is an effective treatment for stress urinary incontinence, and it's effective for both primary recurrent stress incontinence. What about laparoscopic colpo suspension? So comparable subjective and objective outcomes to open colpo suspension, level two. And subjective outcome is similar to TVT, although the objective outcome tends to be poorer. Again, level two evidence. So from the international consultation, we have a grade C recommendation that laparoscopic colpo suspension should only be recommended for the treatment of stress and constants by surgeons with appropriate training and expertise, and also that women should be advised about the long-term durability. If we go back to um, Tony Smith's uh, laparoscopic colpo trial, so this of course is from St. Mary's in Hospital in Manchester where Rona works. So this was a large multi-center perspective UK randomized trial comparing open colpo suspension to laparoscopic colpo suspension. And you can see similar objective cure rates and similar subjective cure rates. Although interesting in this study, there was no difference in hospital stay or return to work. And I think the key thing about this study was that these were skilled laparoscopic surgeons who um, were very skilled in performing laparoscopic corpus suspension. So this is a very specific group. What about the most recent Cochrane meta-analysis? So this is uh, reported in 2019. Um, so this is a meta-analysis of 13 trials looking at around 1,300 women. Little difference between laparoscopic and open, a lower risk of complications with uh, a laparoscopic approach, but a higher rate of bladder perforation. No difference in the risk of detrusor overactivity, although you'll see that the overall conclusion from Cochrane was that overall the studies were of low quality and therefore there remains um, a degree of uncertainty. 
So what about now looking at a common denominator? So let's look at both colposuspension and laparoscopic colposuspension versus TVT. So this is the Ward-Hilton TVT study, and this is the five-year data reported in 2006. And as you can see, in terms of efficacy, there was little difference between TVT and corporate suspension. Although, as you would imagine, a much higher rate of uh, prolapse surgery in the corporate suspension arm as compared to the TVT arm. So I think most of us would agree that corporate suspension and TVT are comparable operations. What about laparoscopic corporate suspension versus TVT? So this is a systematic review from 2006 looking at seven trials involving over 500 women, similar subjective cure rates, similar levels of de novo detrusor overactivity, although the objective cure rate was significantly lower in the laparoscopic group as compared to the TVT group. Interestingly here, more bladder injury in the TVT group and increased surgical time, as you may expect, for the laparoscopic arm. So I think looking at this systematic review, we get the impression that perhaps efficacy rates are slightly lower with laparoscopic colposuspension suspension as compared to TVT. So what about the ICI's findings on laparoscopic colposuspension? suspension? So they quote, it should be noted that much of the published data in this area is from individuals with enthusiasm and skill in laparoscopic surgery, and their results should not necessarily be seen as being generalizable to the urogynecology community at large, which of course is fine if you're Rona Keeney and you have skill in laparoscopic surgery and you work in a, a big centre such as St Mary's in Manchester, but perhaps less relevant if you, have, if you don't have such good laparoscopic skills. What does NICE say? Well, NICE says that laparoscopic colposuspension suspension is not recommended as routine procedure for the treatment of stress urinary incontinence in women, and the procedure should only be performed by an experienced laparoscopic surgeon working within an MDT and who has experience in managing urinary incontinence. So again, if you're Rona and you're working in Manchester with her urogynecology team there, of course you have all of these in place. Perhaps if you're working elsewhere without the laparoscopic expertise, then maybe laparoscopic colposuspension suspension shouldn't be considered first-line therapy. So what I'm going to ask you to do now is move away from the ivory towers move away from the domain of St. Mary's Hospital in Manchester, and let's look at the real world of urogynecology, and let's think a little bit about the use of bulking agents. For those of you familiar with bulking agents, of course, there are a number of different agents on the market, and perhaps the most commonly used product at the moment in the UK, of course, is Bulkamid, which is bottom right on the slide. Chris Chappell um, performed a review of bulking agents in 2005, and he showed overall there was cure or improvement in 75% of women. There was a, a improvement in quality of life with a low complication rate, and he concluded that they should be considered first-line therapy after failure of conservative measures, and also should be considered after a discussion with the patient to look at their own individualized treatment goals. What are the advantages of bulking agents? Well, they offer a truly minimally evasive approach. They may be performed under local anesthesia in the ambulatory setting, low morbidity, a reduced instance of voiding difficulties and de novo, de novo detrusor overactivity. They may be suitable in women with medical comorbidities. And of course, patients may choose them over other options, which of course brings us back to the CURE study. 
What about the concern regarding longevity of bulking agents? So this is some uh, work from Gamal Gamin in the United States. So this is looking at macroplastic, which was a systematic review of 800 patients in 20 studies. You can see short-term success rates of around 73%. At one year, this was unchanged. One year cure rates of around 41%. Then if we look at the long-term improvement, this doesn't drop significantly with long-term improvement of 64% and long-term cure just less than 40%. So I think good long-term data now for macroplastique. What about the more recent data looking at bulkamids? So this is published last in 2020. This was a single center retrospective study of 1,200 patients treated with bulkamid. And of these around just under 400 had completed seven year follow-up. And you can see in terms of cure improvement, um, 67% in primary surgery and 61% in redo surgery. Uh, no significant perioperative complications and minimal problems in terms of um, voiding dysfunction and low urinary tract infection. So I think both of these studies now dis dispel that myth that bulk, uh, bulking agents only work in the short term. How do bulking agents compare to traditional continence surgery? And this is some work from Jacques Corcos in Montreal from 2005. And he looked at bulking agents, in this case collagen, as compared to traditional continence surgery, so bladder neck suspensions, corpus suspensions, and autologous slings. Uh, in terms of objective outcome, you can see um, surgery did have a, a higher success rate as compared to collagen. But when it comes to subjective outcome, which arguably is more important to the patient, you can see there was no significant difference between traditional surgery and a bulking agent. And there was also no significant difference in terms of quality of life, with of course fewer complications in the bulking agent group as compared to traditional surgery. So I think this study would suggest to us that maybe bulking agents have similar um, efficacy in terms of subjective outcome to our more traditional continence procedures. So we've already used TVT as an anchor between colposuspension and laparoscopic colposuspension. Let's though use that as an anchor with a bulking agent. And this is Tommy Mikolaou's study looking at bulkamid versus TVT from Finland reported in 2020. So this is in over 200 women with primary stress urinary incontinence. All of these procedures were performed in Helsinki in the ambulatory setting. And you can see in terms of satisfaction rates at one year, 95% for TVT, 60% for bulking agents. Objectively negative stress test, again, 95% with TVT, bulkamid around 66%. But of course, this again comes up with that trade-off, higher risk of complications with TVT, minimal complications with bulkamid. And the uh, conclusion from Tommy's trial was that bulkamid may be offered as an alternative in primary stress urinary incontinence. What about quality of life? So this is now looking at the same study. Um, so the quality of life was assessed using the UDI-6, the IIQ-7, sexual function using PISQ-12, and general quality of life using the RAN-36. And you can see a significant improvement in quality of life in both groups, although in general quality of life tended to be higher in the TVT arm, Although again, this comes with that significant increase in pain. So we see this trade-off yet again between a TVT and a bulking agent, with bulking agent having um, similar success rates, but lower complications. 
coming back to the ICI recommendations, now looking at bulking agents, so grade B, a recommendation there, an option for selected individuals after, with stress urinary incontinence after appropriate counselling regarding the lack of long-term uh, durability, although I hope I've shown that we now have that, and may be offered to women as first-line therapy for recurrent or persistent stress incontinence following ser failed surgery, although the outcome is likely to be inferior to traditional redo surgery. So just to remind you of the bulking agent advantages, a truly minimally invasive approach and the local anesthetic only in the clinics, the patients walk in, they walk out. There's no risk of bladder or visceral injury, no abdominal incisions with minimal morbidity, no long-term complications. The outcomes tend to be similar to traditional surgery. They tend to be cost-effective. And I would suggest it's a far easier technique to learn than a laparoscopic corpus suspension. I would also suggest that bulking agents offer truly minimally invasive surgery. You don't have the scars from the laparoscopic ports, which some patients may find um, a nuisance. And certainly this study from Ian Curry, which was reported in 1996, demonstrated that women tended to prefer the cosmetic appeal of a fan and steel incision rather than laparoscopic incisions over the upper abdomen. And of course, by using a bulking agent, you avoid any form of, of um, abdominal incision. So let's finally reappraise the evidence. I think I've shown you over the last 20 minutes that colpo suspension is probably a little bit better in terms of uh, objective efficacy than laparoscopic colpo suspension. If we believe the Ward-Hilton study, colpo suspension is similar in terms of outcomes to TVT. And if we look at that systematic review I showed you, a TVT tends to have a better um, outcome as compared to laparoscopic colpus suspension. Now, of course, to date, we don't have any studies comparing laparoscopic colpus suspension with bulking agents. But if we work through the evidence that I've shown you, I think in terms of efficacy, thinking about Jack Corpus's study, colpus suspension is similar to, to bulking agents, although objectively probably slightly better. In terms of efficacy, thinking about bulking agents and TVT from Tom and Mikulau studies, looking at the objective outcome, TVT is clearly better than bulking agent. But in terms of quality of life and subjective outcome, the two procedures are very similar. In terms of complications, of course, TVT tends to have more complications than bulking agents. So I think it's therefore reasonable to make the assumption that using TVT as an anchor to try and bring all of these procedures together, that maybe bulking agents have a similar outcome to laparoscopic colpus suspension overall. So therefore, I hope over the last 20 minutes, I've managed to debunk the myths that we introduced to you two at the beginning. I propose that bulking agents are effective, that they're non-inferior to traditional continent surgery, that they have good long-term efficacy and therefore should be considered as first-line therapy and primary stress urinary incontinence. So I'd encourage you to support my side of the motion that bulking agents should be considered first-line endoscopic treatment for women with stress urinary incontinence. A really interesting summary, I'm sure you'll agree. Now, our second speaker on the webinar was Ms. Rona Kearney, who is a consultant urogynecologist at Manchester University NHS Foundation Trust, who conversely was 
all for laparoscopic corporal suspension as the first line treatment for urinary stress incontinence. And again, I'm going to share her talk with you now. Well, good evening to everybody from Manchester, and I'm delighted to talk about laparoscopic corporal suspension today. Next slide, please. I have no relevant disclosures to make. I thought I'd begin by very gently just reviewing the technique uh, for corpus suspension. There are various approaches, but we're just going to begin the video to look at the approach um, that I favor. And this is a video that was filmed um, with myself and my trainees in the Warren unit in Manchester. Um, so this is the intraperitoneal corpus suspension approach. And I start by putting some methylene blue on the bladder to delineate the dome of the bladder. And I use open entry Hassan technique on bilical port and two five millimeter lateral ports and a 10 millimeter superpubic port and begin the dissection by identifying the obliterated umbilical ligaments and with downward traction on those ligaments, opening up the space of retias. Um, the downward traction is very important in order to be able to get into the space of retias. And essentially what you're doing is going up into the space of retias over the bladder and down to the endopelvic fascia. And you're identifying the pubic bones and the iliopectineal ligaments on either side. And here you can see the dissection identifying the pubic bone. You can use really any type of electrical device. You can use monopolar, bipolar, harmonic, thunderbeat. All of these are suitable instruments to use for a laparoscopic corpus suspension. You don't have to take down the midline part. You can just do lateral uh, sides only, but certainly for teaching and training, it's easier to take down the midline part so the surgeon has plenty of room for suturing. And it's just finishing off opening of the space of retias here. And then you're going to find the vagina, the endopelvic fascia, as low down, aiming for the level of the mid-upper urethra bladder neck. I think if you put your sutures too high, you're more likely to obstruct your ureter, so it's quite important that you aim for them to be low enough. And this here is a Hagar in the vagina, which is pushing up lateral to the bladder, and you can see the white line of the vagina and the endopelvic tissue there. And then placing a suture through the vagina, um, I take two bites of the vagina in a double bite and then passing that suture through the iliopectineal ligament. I use permanent ethobond sutures for laparoscopic corpus suspension. Some people use absorbable sutures, but certainly all the laparoscopic versus open trials are done using permanent ethobond sutures, um, and I still use those. And then this is just passing it through the iliopectineal ligament. As Dudley has alluded to, you do need a level of laparoscopic training and suturing to be able to do this. Um, and the NICE guidance published in 2019 has indicated that laparoscopic cold suspension is a first option choice for the management of stress incontinence. And like all procedures, it's presumed that surgeons don't perform any procedures that they're not competent to perform and regularly performing. This is a suture being tied, allowing a suture bridge somewhere between two to four centimeters between the endopelvic fascia and the iliopectineal ligament. And then the second suture is usually slightly above the first suture. So you have two sutures, each suture taking two bites to ensure you've got good elevation of the 
endopelvic fascia up towards the iliopectineal ligaments. With pelvic suspensions, we usually tie the knots with a knot pusher, as it's easiest to tension the suture bridge to make sure that you don't over-elevate um, the tissue, which can cause obstructed voiding. So the final stages of those sutures being tied down. You can see here you've got the bladder clearly medial to where you put the stitches in the endopelvic fascia vagina. It's a very nice laparoscopic procedure to perform. It's quick and easy. It usually can be done in an hour or less. Um, the patients can either go home the same day or they can go home the following day. And this is just showing you the final stitch being tied. And you can see here you've got good elevation of your vagina towards your iliopectineal ligaments. And that's the final view. And then after this, we close the space of Etsias and remove the laparoscopic ports as you would with any lap laparoscopic procedure. Um, your next slide, please. So the current NICE guidelines published in April 2019 recommend your first line choice for the surgical management of stress urinary incontinence is a colpus suspension, which can be open or laparoscopic or an autologous rectus fascial sling. And it also includes the option of the retropubic mid-urethral tapes, which we know are still under a pause by NHS England. It does mention that you can consider intramural bulking agents, but that these are also permanent injectable materials. Repeat injections may be needed to achieve effectiveness. Limited evidence suggests they are less effective than the surgical procedures listed above and there is limited evidence on the long-term effectiveness and adverse events of the bulking agents. Uh, next slide. So I thought there's an awful lot of research studies, and in fact, all these research studies were distilled up to January 2019 into the NICE guidance and the evidence and recommendations are based on that. But taking a pragmatic view, I thought let's have a look at what is happening in stress incontinence surgery in the UK by the clinicians who are recording their surgeries and surgical outcomes on the British Society of Urogynecology audit database. And this covers all the operations performed in 2018 and 2019, bearing in mind that there was a pause on the mid-urethral tapes towards mid-2018. Um, so you can see here the number of centres that are reported to be doing those procedures, and you can see there were 33 centres that were reported to be doing laparoscopic colon suspension, and 107 centres reported doing bladder neck injections. Next slide. Now, what I think is interesting in this data is if you look at the laparoscopic Culpus suspension. In 2008, there were none recorded. Four years later, in 2012, only six were recorded on the BSA database. If you go forward to 2018, you get a sudden jump in 189 cases. So you almost have a doubling of cases between 2007 and 2018. And I think this is important because this would suggest that there were a lot of people performing laparoscopic culpus suspension in 2018 and 19 that had not performed laparoscopic colpus suspension before. And I think this is important because it's likely that those surgeons, some of them would have been early on in the learning curve of their laparoscopic urogynecology training. And I think this is relevant for the next slide. If we go to the next slide and we look at the percentage of patients who reported much better and very much better, we can see it was 56% for those who had the bladder neck injectables 
It was 88% for those who had open corpus suspension, 80% for those who had laparoscopic corpus suspension, and 89% of those who had a fascial sling. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see whether there continues to be the difference in open colpo and laparoscopic in five to 10 years time, as those surgeons who started performing laparoscopic colpus suspension within a couple of years gain more experience and have done more cases. So I think that will be interesting to see whether the learning curve has an impact on the success rate of laparoscopic colpus suspension versus open colpus suspension. Um, next slide, please. It's also worthwhile looking at the post-operative complications. And I think, you know, Mr. Robinson has discussed um, the low complication rates with bladder neck injectables. And you're balancing the low efficacy with the low complication rates. When you look at laparoscopic colon suspension, you will see it has much lower complication rate when compared with fascial sling and open colon suspension in terms of blood transfusions, return to theatres, and in terms of catheterization. And not surprisingly, fascist sling has quite a high rate of catheterization for longer than 10 days of 15%, and is 4.8% for lap colpo, and is 5.8% for open colpo. And certainly when you talk to women preoperatively, they're very concerned about the need to self-catheterize and the risk of this could be permanent. And that is certainly one of the factors uh, that plays on their mind. So you can see the laparoscopic colpo suspension when it comes to the procedures recommended by NICE as first line has one of the lowest complication rates. Excellent. So looking at the surgical success of laparoscopic colpo suspension at our unit in Manchester, um, there were 102 procedures on the BISA database and we certainly aren't very good at recording our PGI and that's certainly an area that we need to improve but certainly 66% reported they were much better and were very much better and 15% reported that they were much better so in total we had 82% of patients said they were very much better or much better we have quite a BMI range at which we perform laparoscopic procedures between a BMI of 22 up to a BMI of 40. Looking at our fascial sling, uh, more of these cases were done for recurrent stress incontinence and 77% of patients were very much better or much better. There were 206 ultimate procedures on the um, database and we again had quite a large proportion were unanswered but of those that were answered, 60% said they were very much better, much better. So what we can see here is we're getting good results with our colpus suspensions. We do very few or practically no open colpus suspensions, so I can't compare that in our own unit. Um, fashion sling rate is lower than colpus suspension, but it has a higher proportion of cases who are having that operation for recurrent stress incontinence. And then Bulkamit has the lowest um, rate of being very much better and much better. And that's certainly in our unit, in the hands of myself and my colleagues. Next slide. However, looking at my learned friend's publication um, back in 2018, uh, do we need better information to advise women with stress incontinence on their choice of surgery? And really, the conversation we're having tonight is about giving women the options and the information around that and helping them make the right choice for themselves because a laparoscopic colpus suspension and a urethral bulking agent 
aren't directly comparable in terms of advantages and disadvantages. But that article said a patient's decision to proceed with a particular management option for stress urinary incontinence is influenced by a number of factors. Procedural factors include efficacy and complication rates, length of stay, recovery time, levels of invasiveness, type of anesthesia, and long-term outcomes. However, these procedural factors are only one aspect that patients consider when making a decision. Other important determinants include personal factors, professional factors, societal factors, and external factors. In addition, patients also make their choice depending on their own expectations and goals related to the outcome. And this publication also recommended that we needed further research into how and why people make choices for particular procedures for stress urinary incontinence. Uh, next slide, Ashley. So one of my colleagues, Fiona Reid, uh, led a research study called Voice Your Choice, where they looked at women's choice of surgery for primary stress urinary incontinence. And they analyzed 212 women, and they found that 64% opted for urethral bulking, 23% a mid-urethral sling, 12% a colpus suspension, and 2% a fascial sling. But an interesting factor was the hospital type was a significant factor in determining the procedure So mid-urethral slings and colpus suspensions or fascial slings were much more likely to be chosen if the woman attended a tertiary hospital compared with those attending a secondary care hospital. And I think there's something about how we offer choice to women, particularly if it includes a procedure that we ourselves do not routinely perform. Uh, next slide. They looked at the various themes that came into play in terms of how women made a choice of which procedure for stress and continence. So they found invasiveness was something that was cited by 25%, the chance of success for, by another 25%. Recovery time was important for one-fifth, as was the risk analysis. Complications were cited by 12% of women. The use of mesh was a consideration in 11%. The influence of the clinician in 9%, and the media in 6%. And they also found there was very much a hierarchical approach. And I think that was one of the factors that sometimes comes into play with urethral bulking. It's less successful, but is also less invasive. You can try that. If it doesn't work, you can still have a laparoscopic complex suspension, for example. And that's one of the factors that I think sometimes plays into the discussion between clinicians and patients. Next slide. So with experienced surgeons, the results are as good with laparoscopic corpus suspension as open with fewer complications, including less pain, shorter stay, and fewer readmissions. The main disadvantage with colpus suspension is the increased risk of developing prolapse. And when you look at the reoperation rate following colpus suspension, um, it is greater than that following a fascial sling or, in fact, a mesh tape. And it's mainly related to the increased risk related to prolapse. But ultimately, there are numerous factors involved in decision making, and we do need further research to understand how we should best present information on incontinence surgery to patients. And certainly having been involved in the development of the nice patient decision aids for surgery for stress urinary incontinence, um, we got wide ranging feedback from patients and clinicians. And it's very difficult to get this right, but it's something that is 
definitely worth further researching to ensure that we have a range of ways we can present information to patients so they can make the decision that's right for them. I think another factor we have to mention at the moment is COVID recovery. We do need to think about the impact um, of the choices we make, the choices patients have in terms of how long it's going to take to access surgery and how important the need for repeat procedures may be in view of the overall COVID backlog. So these are all factors that I think we need to consider uh, going forward. Thank you. Now, if you didn't get a chance to see this webinar live, it is available for BSGE members on the BSGE website. I really do encourage you to watch it. It was hosted superbly by Angus Thompson and Matthew Izzet-Kay. And the surgical videos that you can hear Rona describing um, can be viewed there. I really hope you've enjoyed our fourth BSGE podcast. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon.